0: Welcome back to The Reeducation. I'm Eli Lake, and today's show is about the false consensus on medical gender transitions for children. My guest is the author of the book, The Quick Fix, and the co host of the blocked and reported podcast, Jesse Single. Last month, the United Kingdom's National Health Service shut down the Tavistock Clinic the only clinic in England that specialized in treating gender dysphoria in children, or when a kid believes he was born into the wrong sex. The closure of Tavistock came after a review that concluded, among other things, that there were, quote, "...critically important, unanswered questions," end quote, about the use of what are known as puberty blockers, drugs that stop the sexual maturation of boys and girls. All of this is important, Because for the last decade or so, transgender activists and some high-profile doctors have insisted that puberty blockers are entirely safe and reversible. It is part of a protocol supported by the Biden administration and many states today. It's known as gender affirmation care. If a boy says he's a girl, then the parents and the clinicians who treat that boy should affirm his choice, or in this case, her choice. To dissuade a child from gender transition is to put a child at risk. They may self-harm or in the worst case commit suicide besides there's nothing harmful about drugs that block puberty so the activists and a few doctors say here's a snippet of an animated youtube video made for children and teens about puberty blockers from a group that calls itself AMAZE and purports to offer expert-based sex education.
1: Puberty blockers are medications that will stop your body from changing. They are usually given as an injection or an implant. They block the production of hormones to stop or delay the
0: physical changes of puberty. The effects of the medication are only temporary, so if a person stops using puberty blockers, the physical changes of puberty will begin again. Seems simple enough, but is it really true? Now listen to Sinead Watson speaking about her experience with a gender clinic in Glasgow, Scotland.
1: You know, I was suffering from depression and from barrier issues, but the second that you put gender on the table, those were ignored and I was just affirmed. I was a trans man, I was beautiful and brave and all the rest of it. And when you listen to, for example, the CQC report that was on the Tavistock, they would say the same thing, that many of these children had autism, or internal telephobia, or histories of trauma, or eating disorder. It was all ignored in favor of unquestioning affirmation. It's ridiculous.
0: The journalists and politicians who have questioned whether the gender clinics are too aggressive with medical transitions for kids that may just grow out of it or are suffering from other mental illnesses have been the targets of trans activists and, unfortunately, many other journalists. Here's a news segment if you can call it that, from the CBS affiliate for Philadelphia about the confirmation hearing for Dr. Rachel Levine, an assistant secretary for health and human services in the Biden administration and the first transgender official to serve in a senior position in the federal government.
1: Much of the hearing focused on the pandemic and other health issues, but Senator Paul's question centered on what's being called transphobic misinformation. Genital mutilation is considered particularly egregious. The senator inaccurately described gender affirming surgery and hormone treatments prescribed for transgender adolescents. Dr. Levine, do you believe that minors are capable of making such a life changing decision as changing one's sex? Transgender medicine is a very complex and nuanced field um, with robust research and uh, standards of care that have been developed. If I am fortunate enough to be confirmed as the Assistant Secretary of Health, I will look forward to working with you. Dr. Levine gave the same answers to a barrage of accusations and questions from Senator Paul, who was widely criticized on Twitter. I think he's a terribly misinformed and ill-educated on the subject of Transgender medicine and surgery. Dr. Sherman Lee is a world-renowned transgender surgeon who operates in the Philadelphia region. He calls Senator Paul's comments discriminatory. Those remarks have nothing to do with, with Rachel Levine, who's a highly qualified physician. She's trained in pediatrics and psychiatry.
0: Notice here, the question Senator Rand Paul is actually asking was whether a child could make an informed decision on whether or not to undergo medical gender transition. Now, is that an example of transphobia to simply ask a government official about something that there is no real consensus in our society about? Senator Paul was trying to get Dr. Levine to affirm that at the very least a child's parents should consent before undergoing such transitions. And Dr. Levine would not answer the question. And for that, a chorus of activists and journalists pounced on Senator Paul. Senator Paul's not alone. My guest today, Jesse Single, has been placed on a list of alleged transphobes by GLAAD, an organization founded in the 1980s to push back against anti-gay coverage in the media. Now, he earned this spot on the list because in 2018, Jesse Single wrote a cover story for The Atlantic that explored young people who had come to regret their gender transitions. That's a real thing. He was one of the first mainstream journalists to report on these de as they are called. Abigail Schreier. His book Irreversible Damage was one of the first really important works of journalism to warn about the downsides of these medical transitions, things like puberty blockers and hormone treatment for children, was also the target of a campaign. Chase Strangio, an ACLU lawyer, if you can believe it, tried to get Amazon to stop selling her book. A, an alleged civil libertarian launched a campaign to stop people from reading a book. The purpose of these campaigns is to intimidate legitimate critics and to create the impression of a medical consensus where there is none. And this is why I have become interested in this particular story. It's a pattern. For example, many scientific experts assess that COVID-19 likely came from a leak at a lab in Wuhan. We now know this. That's the city in China, by the way, where the coronavirus first emerged. And yet, for a year, the media, Dr. Fauci, and many others, denounced that as a xenophobic conspiracy theory, even as emails finally came out this year that showed some of Dr. Fauci's own advisors believed that the virus was man-made. Similar phenomenon happened during the first years of the Trump administration when experts insisted that the evidence of a conspiracy between Trump's campaign and Russia was mounting, and to question that evidence was to take the side of a hostile foreign power. And the real question about Tavistock in this light is not how it was or why it was shut down but rather why it took so long to shut it down as early as 2005 there were warning signs that this clinic was conducting an experiment on many children who had treated
1: Newsnight has obtained a copy of that 2005 review dr taylor stresses that staff were doing all they could to help the patients who were often very distressed but his report went on to detail several areas he believed needed addressing. He noted that many children referred to the service had suffered trauma or had mental health problems. Staff faced pressure to comply with demands from patients and their parents to be referred for puberty blocking medication. There wasn't a robust evidence base underpinning this treatment and staff disagreed about the best way to treat these young people. The implications for this are that young people might not have had other issues addressed before making a potentially life-changing decision to go onto puberty-blocking drugs.
0: More recently, reporter Lucy Bannerman of the Sunday Times of London has done groundbreaking work on Tavistock. In 2019, for example, she reported that five staff members of the clinic quit in protest and that there was an internal review which said clinicians were encouraged to put children on puberty blockers. For that work, which has now been vindicated... A mob picketed her newspaper and demanded that the Times fire her. In 2020, Kieran Bell, a former patient at Tavistock, sued the clinic in the UK, claiming that she was encouraged to pursue a gender transition that she now regrets. Kira was already taking the clinic she was treated at to court, and now she's going further. She believes she was steered down a medical pathway and wants clinicians to do more to explore the reasons why a young person is changing their gender before they're treated. Kira says the counselling she received here should have prioritized her biological sex in the same way it did her gender identity, but the Tavistock Centre say that they provide a thoughtful and measured service, and as they put it, their dedicated staff have the best interests of their patients at heart. So again, why did it take so long to shut Tavistock down? Kemi Bedinac, a UK minister that played a role in the Tavistock review, has an answer. She wrote this last month for the Sunday Times of London. The reason it took this long for the Tavistock Clinic to be shut down is that activists succeeded in creating an environment in which critics and journalists felt unable to interrogate the dogma that youngsters should be able to medically transition in the way overseen by Tavistock. So there was an environment that was created that made questioning these protocols so toxic that people, journalists, journalists, Other members of government, various UK ministers, are pretty much intimidated into silence because to question that dogma would mean that you would have a campaign, a whole group of people, coalitions of people, calling you a transphobe, and worse in some cases. Now, I think that's very important because by anathematizing legitimate critics, the activists are short-circuiting the process necessary for progress. Good journalism, honest oversight, intelligent dissent. These are the ways that we self-correct in a free society. Now, I understand that many of the activists believe they are fighting for the dignity and, in some cases, the very lives of trans youth, and those are important issues, and that is their right. But it doesn't mean that the rest of us need to go along with it. Social media companies should not rely on activists to tell them what is and what is not misinformation, and journalists should not be cowed by pressure campaigns. The activists deserve a hearing. They do not deserve a veto. So right now the reeducation is so fortunate to have our guest which is Jesse Single who is the author of The Quick Fix, co-host of the terrific podcast Blocked and Reported which I highly recommend and the proprietor of the Single Minded newsletter on Substack which is which is always worth reading and somebody who I've gotten to know because he has written for New York Magazine and the Atlantic and has really been one of the most lively and interesting journalists in the last 10 years in my view. And this is kind of my first time meeting him. So thank you so much for coming on the reeducation, Jesse.
1: Thank you. Thank you for the kind words. I appreciate that
0: so let's let's talk about the major decision last week of the British National Institute of Health to shut down the Tavistock Center, which I guess is the country's only center devoted to treating gender dysphoria. And I wanted to get your sense of why is that significant for some of the trans youth, debate or issues here in America.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is, this wasn't a surprise. This is a big deal though. This, this comes from the so-called Cass review. Hillary Cass, this highly respected doctor, pediatrician has been sort of looking into the way the national health service deals with gender issues. And if you get youth gender medicine through the NHS, you do it through the Tavistock clinic and it's two sort of satellite offices. And there've been Satellite clinics, I should say, there's been years of complaints on all sides about the way this clinic functions. Trans people or, or gender questioning people and their parents have claimed that the wait times are just egregiously long. That's because there's been a huge uptick in the number of kids seeking these services, both in the UK and everywhere else where we have data. Within the clinic, there have been whistleblowers basically saying, we feel pressured to shuttle kids quickly toward physical transition even when we're not sure that that's what's best for them. That came out in reporting. Some of the best reporting was done by the, the Sunday Times out of London. Also the cast report itself, the interim version of which was released in February, included sort of paraphrasings of interviews with clinicians basically saying this. And one thing that's worth noting is that they said about 10% of the kids in the clinic have autism or otherwise neuroatypical and that's there's always been a, an observed correlation between gender dysphoria and autism but that makes it even more challenging to diagnose and work with these kids and and figure out what's best for them so the we could we could talk about this in any direction you want the long and the short version is they're shutting down Tavistock now because of these concerns and sort of uh, sp- will be spreading out its patients into I believe two other clinics which will Uh, be launching with much more of a focus on sort of holistic mental health oriented care.
0: What is the status right now of treatment in this country in terms of what standards and are, you know, I mean, there are are many who have criticized that there is a similar trend in America where there is a sort of rush to surgical or if not surgical hormonal treatment for gender dysphoria in youth and that it's too quickly going down that road is that is that your experience and have you having reported on this
1: yeah i think it it depends hugely on where you are in the country I, i think if you live in you know boston or cambridge or berkeley major blue metropolitan areas i think there are clinics that will basically rush kids towards transition i've also interviewed clinicians who if I had kids, I would trust them to work with my mm-hmm. kids. I think they work at these bigger, more interdisciplinary clinics, also also usually in major cities. Those are the clinics that do a good, careful job, I think, assessing kids and making sure only kids who will potentially benefit from these treatments go on them. But that is a very time and resource intensive thing to have a team that includes an endocrinologist, maybe a social worker, a psychologist, a psychiatrist. So it's not Part of this is ideological. Part of this is this attack on so-called gatekeeping, which I think is a ridiculous term to use in the context of 14 and 15-year-olds because that's what doctors are supposed to do with minors is gatekeep them. Part of it's ideological. Part of it is just, it's a resource thing. That's part of what happened at Tavistock where they just don't have enough bodies to do good, careful clinical work. Okay, so, and this is going to be taking a little bit of a step back,
0: but I mean, there there have been documentaries and news art news items in this country from maybe four or five, six years ago, there was a documentary called the most dangerous year. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but I recently watched to educate myself and one of the, it, it deals with families who say, listen, as young as two years old, our son said, I'm really a girl. And that the, 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 I want to make sure I steel man this because the argument from, you know, you could say the, the sort of, you know, the, the, the pro or the, I don't want to everyone's pro trans in this debate, but you know what I mean? the argument is that this is coming from the children themselves who are realizing that they're stuck in the wrong body and there's a part of me that says how would a two-year-old possibly know can you talk a little bit about that i mean is that real that there are two-year-olds or three-year-olds even let alone like a seven-year old i mean i don't know it seems like the younger you get the harder it is for me to accept that the child actually feels that they want to be the opposite gender, or am I wrong? And that sometimes does happen. It's happening more and more.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're, you're partly wrong, and that's actually you're you're getting at the key to this whole debate. So, the clinic that has done the most work and produced the most data on gender dysphoria kids is in the Netherlands. It's people it's just known as the Dutch clinic like among folks who know this okay. world. It's that famous. And they traditionally saw kids who were mostly biologically male and who had gender dysphoria from a very young age and they their protocol the so-called Dutch approach was to monitor the kids over time see if the gender dysphoria went away around the onset of puberty. And if it didn't seem to, that's when they would put them on blockers originally at age 12. Now we're putting kids on blockers younger. That population of kids who felt gender dysphoric from a very young age was always a pretty small group. And in recent years, there's been a shift. First of all, the gender ratio has completely flipped from mostly male, biologically male to mostly biologically female kids. Second, it's increasingly the case that you get kids who had no qualms or complaints about their gender until much later in life, until often early adolescence. And that's a group where we have, whereas we have a little bit of medium-term outcome data on kids who develop GD early in life and where it's stuck around, we have no data on this other population of kids. And increasingly, gender clinics are getting swamped with this new later onset of gender dysphoria. So I think there's kids where... I don't really like born in the wrong body, but I think it's like a decent approximation of the experience. You get you do have stories told by trustworthy clinicians and parents of kids who from age two, from the time they can talk are saying things like, I wish God could put me in my mom's belly, back in my mom's belly to make me a boy, make me a girl. That's the traditional sense of what we mean when we talk about a trans kid. And I think that's very different from kids who at 12 suddenly come out as trans because it it does suggest in the prior case, probably some sort of biological factor. And we have some data on lo- what like exposure to different levels of hormones do in utero. Like okay. one of the theories is that gender nonconforming in gay kids, one of the explanations for that is they got, you know, quote unquote, more or less of different hormones than, than straight kids or gender conforming kids. So I think there's like a biological basis for this, but it's just that difference between the early and later onset GD is crucial to this debate.
0: That is really helpful. I want to, I mean, does that mean that, you know, for centuries and millennia in human society, that there was a small subset minority of people who were born and they were, you know, they, they had suffered gender dysphoria as a child. And we just started fairly recently
1: recognizing that. Well, I think there's always a lot of cultures have come up with ways to quote unquote deal with people who don't fit gender norms. So I think a lot of cultures that have, I'm not an expert on this, but like in Samoa, they have a third gender. And if a boy came out and acted too much like a girl, they didn't try to make him a girl. They made him a fafafine. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's like Mm -hmm. the third gender role where you're like, you're a girly boy. And I think in a lot of, you know, for sort of, uh, less quote unquote enlightened cultures. That's a, a way, a functional way to like let these folks carve out a meaningful role in society while acting the way they want to act, trying right? not to force them into gender boxes. I'm not. There's this very dumb lefty line that these these cultures are like super enlightened. They they understood. If mm-hmm. the gender binary was stupid, that that's not the case. They actually had very essentialist ideas of how this stuff should work. But yeah, I think there's always been kids who probably would not feel comfortable presenting as male or presenting as female and really did identify more with like the, uh, the other side, as it were.
0: And it was just a malady. It was just like, hey, that's the, the we didn't think about treating it until fairly recently, at least in the West. Right.
1: I think, the, well, yeah, the idea of medicalizing it is is sort of. Brand new, like right. twenty five years for kids, or twenty I don't twenty seven ish. Yeah, I think usually the way cultures have dealt with this is is either <laughs> brutally repress the kid and try to force them into a gender box, or something like a third gender. And I I guess I think in most cases it would serve. One of the reasons I'm skeptical of this idea that there's massive number of kids who need blockers or who need hormones, or they're going to kill themselves, which is the, the claim that's all too often. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're going to get into yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's probably just the case that there's a lot of like gender nonconforming or questioning kids or kids who might be going through a phase. And it, if if it had been the case that were, there were this many kids who needed medicalization or they would kill themselves, we would have had, it's morbid to talk about, but we would have had much higher use suicide rates in the past.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's what I, that's, that's, and I'm not, I'm not asking this because I'm trying to lead you down, like kind of to make an argument or something. I, genuinely really was stunned the idea that a two-year-old would know that but this is actually very helpful that that you know and that in your view that's that's a tiny subset and uh, the 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 sort of contagion or potentially social contagion here which i've noticed that certain people are now beginning to acknowledge is a separate question right
1: yeah and and you know i don't think I've talked to kids who, who, I don't know if they'd use the word social contagion, but yeah, they're like, I went through a phase because my friends are doing it. And all, I mean, it's the idea that there aren't some tweens and teens influenced by what the way their peers are talking about gender is, is ridiculous. And it's fine in most cases, because they're not going to, most of them aren't seeking medical services, but that's obviously part of what's going on now. But yes, I would separate that out from, I think most parents know that like by two, a lot of kids' personalities are actually pretty apparent at a young age. And for some kids, part of that is just deep gender nonconformity, which is fine. Okay,
0: moving on. I want to talk about the, there are the 80s. I, I've never quite seen anything like this except for maybe, well, I don't even want to say that. I was going to say something, but I'm not going to say that. I'm, it's it's extraordinary how much the discourse on transgender issues and particularly the idea of medically treating transgender youth is subject to both traditional kinds of, you know, pressure that we experience on social media, and vicious campaigns which you, which I would like to, talk, you've experienced. But also, I mean, we've seen a little bit of this in terms of social media companies and, you know, taking out you know, accounts that are saying things that would have been non-controversial even three years ago or something, that there's a real emphasis right now to prevent a full debate on things like puberty blockers or giving kids hormones. And I wanted to kind of get a sense from you is, does that, is that making us dumber in the sense of, we're maybe we're maybe in the process of committing this mistake and over diagnosing a problem, uh, and we don't have the natural feedback in a free society of people writing you know bravely as you have, and people accepting that. And so we're going to continue making that mistake, you know because because there is so much pressure to say the wrong thing in this context,
1: yeah. I mean, this has been a huge problem, and it's been sort of what's what's the term? I'm like it's like a pluralistic ignorance kind of thing where mm-hmm. all along i I've been in some circles, I've been quote unquote controversial on this stuff since. 2018 and well aren't you on a list from glad glad put me on a list yeah Yeah. and you you can read the stuff on the list all of which is stuff i stand by because it's just straightforward reporting on youth gender dysphoria but the uh, the number of emails i get from just like normal liberal obama voting people who themselves are like Huh, like do three-year-olds always know who they are? Should we put kids on puberty blockers? People have always had questions about this. And there's been a huge attempt to stifle debate and punish people who who bring those questions out into the open. I think that has probably delayed a real conversation on this for years. The other thing that obviously delays it is what Republicans are doing. In my view, some very over-the-top. Kill a mosquito with a rocket launcher. Laws and, and sure. policies that makes it much harder. This that also makes all this much harder. But at the end of the day, this is a, a increasingly roaring medical controversy in Europe. And the idea that we were ever going to be able to like bully or browbeat our way out of a discussion over largely untested drugs being used on kids—not that the drugs are untested, but in this use case, they're almost completely untested. That's ridiculous. The good news is things are getting better. The Washington Post coverage has improved. The New York Times coverage has improved. And there's there's uh, some light at the end of the tunnel, but I think this has been a pretty shameful chapter for American journalism.
0: Well, one of the things I really appreciate about your journalism was by asking these questions and saying it's not settled science that you can just push a pause button on puberty without implication, which is that was the line that we were getting from, I don't even want to say, I mean, th- this is what frustrates me as an outsider to the debate, is that we there's a group of people who will tell you there's a scientific consensus where there is none. Yeah, yeah and medical consensus where there is none who are themselves just advocates. And it becomes this talking point where, of course, as somebody who isn't a medical doctor and not an expert in any of this, I'm just another journalist, I'm not gonna, I don't question like vaccines or medical, I'm not interested, I'm not, I understand the limits of my own knowledge, but I also do not trust people who, you know, when you say there's a consensus and there isn't one, it's just, it's maddening. And I do think it makes us, I think it makes us dumber and it's causing more harm.
1: Yeah, no, I, that that has been really bad. Also, there's been a number of medical professionals who have sort of carved out media gigs or or frequent media appearances by saying exactly that, that there's no controversy here. It, it's a bit of a dive into the weeds, but I, I did a post on my newsletter about Science Versus, which bills itself as, the Cut Through the Bullshit Science podcast. Yeah, I remember.
0: Yeah, it was a very good post, by the way. I remember that. Yeah. Thank
1: you. And they're, they're supposedly not afraid to take on the sacred cows. They endorse the view that youth gender medicine is not controversial, full stop. And they, I looked at, to their credit, they include show notes where they cite their sources. They cited seven studies to support the claim that it's not controversial. The studies just don't show anything close to that. It's just, it's not, I don't think they intentionally lied, but I think some people are so drunk on the Kool-Aid that even folks we should be able to trust, like a podcast called Science Versus, this is has a little bit of a radicalizing effect on me. That's all I'll say.
0: Well, no, but it, 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 I'm radicalizing in a good way because one of the other things I admire about you and Katie on the show is that you do not, because of your frustrations with, you know, advocates who've been, done some pretty terrible personal things to you. I mean, I have this story about Katie's, a picture, I guess, being put up in Seattle when she did that piece for the stranger. I mean, I couldn't believe that kind of thing. And but you it hasn't driven you to endorse, you know, some of the over-the-top bills that would basically politicize any kind of medical treatment. And so that is to your great credit. And that's one of the things I try to do on this program is to sort of say, listen, there you don't have to pick one, you know, lunatic side. You can, you can sort of go your own way. So I really appreciate that, but I want to, I want to maybe ask you like, you know, just in your own personal experience, have you, and if you don't want if you don't want to talk about this, but have you, when you, cause you've made the transition, I guess, from journalists, you know, journalists getting gigs and working in magazines and stuff like that to now being independent. And a lot of us are doing that right now. But what I wanted to ask from you is, you know, did this make you somewhat radioactive in, in a few years ago? You know, I mean, when you were coming out with this stuff.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I would be able to juke my subscription numbers better if I said I'd been totally canceled and was like,
0: no, I'm not saying you're canceled. I'm just like, <laughs> what, 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 but you know what? No, I, yes, I there, there's an editor there's... saying, I don't know, Jesse, eh, you know, yeah. we're going to have to deal with all these, you know, these advocates like, you know, the Glad people are very, very, you know, very, very persistent and determined, especially when it comes to mainstream media. I mean, I don't know if you remember this thing with Grantland from 2013 or 2014. It was like a, Piece about a, a trans woman who had who was a, also a kind of a fraudster who had invented a fake, you know, oh,
1: doctor b- Doctor V or something.
0: Doctor V, exactly. And in in the process of reporting the story, unfortunately, it was very tragic. She killed herself. But you know, Glad had basically said this reporter, you know, is responsible for her death. It was a huge thing. There was set, there was like an apology from Bill Simmons, who was the head of Grantland at the time. ESPN got involved. They ran something from one of these Glad advocates on the site there was a whole media cycle of other publications like the new Republic writing about how terrible this was. It is a real thing. Like, you know, if you, I mean, I don't know if it's the same, but I mean, did you, did you, can you talk about that experience? Like, did you have editors saying, Hey, maybe move yeah, that off here?
1: I, I mean, the short answer is no, I, I still feel like I can write, I can write for the places I want to write for. I, I won't pitch them trans stuff because it's just, that's not worth it. But I don't feel like I've been shut out from pitching, you know, major outlets I've written for in the past. Obviously, there's, you know, a few dozen journalists and writers, maybe more, who on Twitter will do everything they can to just say what a piece of shit I am frankly. And there was a really dark chapter after the article came out where they started trying to spread rumors. They never even pinned it down a specific accusation, but they basically started spreading rumors that I had like DM trans women in an inappropriate way, which was That was just like another level for me, just the level of of indecency. But at the end of the day, I do think this benefited me because people want journalists of some degree of integrity and independence. And, you know, last fall, the, the New York Times asked me to review a book about trans stuff. So how I can't really complain about the situation if I'm still getting to do stuff like that. It's just it makes it obviously there's a degree of like social awkwardness and you know, the gawker the diaspora hates me, which it, it's a little annoying, but I what am I gonna do? When people when people get mad at me on Twitter, I ask them, what was it I said you disagreed with? And nine times out of ten, they can't give me a precise answer. They just know they're supposed to hate me.
0: That's 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 super interesting. I want to ask with a little bit of time we have left, Jesse. I recently watched What is a Woman by Matt Walsh. My immediate reaction was, oh my God, my hair's on fire. But then I went and listened to your podcast about some of the flaws in it. So I just for our listeners, you know, what did he get right and what did he get wrong in your view? And is it is it maybe is it useful to have? I mean, the right is going to I mean, conservatives, I think, are naturally going to be outraged by this because it is a major change in our society and culture. And conservatives tend to be for conserving, you know, institutions. I thought, you know. In some ways, he did the work. I mean, he interviewed a lot of these people, and it was kind of amazing to watch them just hoist themselves on their own petards. Like he, you know, you'd think they'd have better answers, but I wanted to make sure. I wanted to kind of get your sense of that. Now,
1: no, I mean, I I think he. This is a major weakness for the Democratic Party at the moment. Like, like Mm. going going into the midterms, each party has strengths and weaknesses. Like, I think Dobbs is going to turn out to be really bad for Republicans, but the the some of the particular linguistic approaches the Democratic Party has chosen to take to trans stuff, such as the idea that a woman is someone who says there's a woman, and that's the only acceptable definition. And that really is how things work within liberal institutions right now, not just the Democratic Party. That it, the, that the, That's known as self-ID, and it just doesn't really work politically, because first of all, you are then no longer able to answer a question like, what is the woman without sounding like a woke robot? Second of all, if you endorse that view, it leads you to places like, you know, I I should be clear, these are outlying events, but they do happen. Like in New Jersey, which adopted self-ID, there's a female prisoner, two female prisoners are now pregnant because they were impregnated by a male prisoner in their unit. There was just a story in the New York Times about a serial killer who was housed in a female shelter, because self ID, it's just it's a policy that probably needs some tweaking. And Walsh, I disagree with Walsh on almost everything politically. But the dark genius of it is he just showed this very basic question can make liberals look stupid and out of touch. And I think we just probably need to come up with better, more compromise oriented answers for how to deal with these questions.
0: That's a good answer. That's a good answer. So, I mean, you, you're, you're, I mean, what I'm getting here is you're not hating it. You don't think it's, you don't think it was a lie. No, I mean, or that there were things that I think in retrospect had, I, you know, when I'm watching it, I was someone who doesn't know as much. There were things that I was like, oh my God, this is happening. And then you sort of realize, well, if you put it into context, actually, you know, there, like, as you, as you sort of just informed me earlier, there are two-year-olds who feel, you know, that that does happen. That's not made up.
1: Yeah, look, Walsh. It was a it was a piece of propaganda. Walsh only interviewed, mostly interviewed medical, like one psychiatrist who's very skeptical of youth transition in a way many thoughtful psychiatrists aren't. But it's political propaganda. I wasn't expecting like a Dateline report. I, I I can't argue with his overall point that if you're stumped by the question, what is a woman, you're going to have a bad time.
0: Okay, and all right, last question, Jesse, and thank you so much for coming on the show. I want to just ask you this, do you believe that maybe we're at a bit of an inflection point with Tavistock in the sense that we can no longer pretend that there is, that is a consensus, that there's no controversy when it comes to gender medicine, medically treating gender dysphoria for youth, and that maybe this begins to open up the conversation in such a way where it isn't a black mark to talk about detransitioners, as you and Katie have reported on, And that maybe we're kind of getting back to a little bit of balance on this issue. And in broader, maybe it's a good sign for the kind of broader cultural discourse.
1: Yeah. Overall, like I said, I'm, excuse me, I'm overall optimistic. The one thing I'm worried about is that Mm -hmm. the level of polarization, not just left, right, but even within lefty communities and the level of like epistemic bubbles where people don't have access to reality worries me. Like there's a lot of, people with big platforms who really think this is settled science and they say that endlessly and they Lash out very angrily.
0: Who says it's settled science now? Who has the big platforms to be concerned?
1: I mean, places like Science, right? Science, versus like just search Emily Bazelon's name on Twitter. She was the New York Times magazine writer who just did a very long, comprehensive, mostly good piece on this.
0: Oh, I thought and her she, piece was really good. Yeah,
1: she got absolutely pilloried. She got called a fascist. And right now I maybe that's just the crazy Twitter people. Maybe they won't win out. I do think in the medical establishment a degree of balance and sanity is returning. So uh, if I had to guess, I think we're headed in the right direction. I'm just worried by how cut off from reality certain influential people are.
0: All right. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. This has been The Reeducation with Eli Lake, a Nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.